Doctrine of sin. Um, if we're going to understand the condition of the world, we need to understand what ails man. And we want to understand it because we want to fix it. Maybe we want to even fix ourselves. And the only way we can do that is to have a robust understanding of what Scripture has to say about sin. Many have attempted to diagnose and treat the problems of this world, and we see it all around us, and they do it apart from an understanding of sin. And these may even stem from good desires. They want, a, they want to restore the brokenness of humanity. They can observe. It does not take a believer to observe the brokenness of humanity. Live a couple of weeks on this planet, and you will understand that man is broken. You may not understand why, and that, this is what really this study here, this point of doctrine, the doctrine of sin, informs us. So we're going to explore the concept of sin, the nature of sin, the effects and transmission of sin, and then we're going to consider the Christian's relationship to sin. So that's kind of where we're going to head this evening. So let's first start talking about the concept of sin. And it's imperative that we have a biblical understanding from the Old and New Testament from those writers inspired of the Holy Spirit to write on this topic. There are over 20 year, uh, different words used in the Greek and Hebrew to talk about sin. I'm not going to go through all of them. But uh, Daniel uh, Doriani writes, the vast terminology within its biblical context suggests that sin has three aspects. It's a disobedience or a breach of law, number one. It's a violation of relationships with people and a rebellion against God, number two, um, and three. And, and that's, a, that's kind of like just the most basic idea. He goes on to give um, six different Hebrew terms. There are more. Um, but as he writes about the biblical usage of the word sin, um, he talks about how it means the missing of a standard or a mark or a goal. You probably have heard that before. It's the breach of a relationship. It's rebellion. It's perverseness. It's another word would uh, give the nuance of um, signifying an error or a mistake or godlessness and injustice or wickedness would be another use of a word that's tra often translated just sin. Or another one would be mischief or, oppress or oppression. If you go into the New Testament, Kenneth Weiss gives us nine different Greek words to consider. And it's pretty similar. But I'll just give you the definitions of them. It's missing the mark. It's transgressing of a line. So crossing over a line, overpassing it. Inattentiveness or disobedience to a voice. That one kind of caught my attentionness. Attentionness. <laughs> Inattentiveness. And, and I, when I read that, I thought, oh, boy, that's, that's something that kind of gives a little shade of, have I been inattentive to the voice or the word of the Lord? Um, uh, falling where one should have stood upright. I think we all can relate to that. Ignorance is something wrong which one should have known about. So we don't know that there's, this is a sin, but we should have known about it. Um, these are all different uh, Greek words. Coming short of one's duty. As servants of the Lord, we can think about that. Thoughts of the bema seat come, came to my mind. Or non-observance of the law. So just not doing what the law says. So, there, so the, there's a lot that the Old and New Testament has to say. And so that biblical usage of these different words helps to bring us to a definition. And the definition is that sin includes those actions and attitudes that miss the mark of God's moral law by which God has set for man. So man doesn't get to set the moral standard. God sets the moral standard. And then it's, it's not only our actions, but as Jesus so often taught, and think of the you know, Sermon on the Mount, if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So he deals with not just actions, but he also deals with attitudes. And so it is the actions and attitudes that miss the mark of God's moral law. And he's the one that has a prerogative to set it and say this is what it is. It is so important that we allow the word of God to establish our definition. Because if you don't do that, then anything can go. 
I think a common approach to, in today's culture is to approve of actions and behaviors that God has forbidden. And we see that all around. And, and not only that, in many cases, and I think in more brazen ways in the last years, it has been in actually those sinful things are the righteous thing, and the righteous thing has become the sinful thing. And we see this. And Jesus said, this is what we should expect was going to happen. And so when we don't allow the word of God to define it for us, now that which is sinful and actually the cause of man's ailing becomes the thing we celebrate, which only furthers to add to our ailing and our troubles and our defeat. Does that not sound like the world we live in? So having a solid biblical definition for sin allows the believer to clearly understand what God requires of them. This is so basic. But I think it's a foundation block that needs to be laid down again. Because sin seems to be a moving target. Sin seems to be something that's highly subjective. And whoever says that is okay or that is sin, then to them that's what it is. But that is not allowing God to be God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But where does sin come from? It's an often asked question. Where does sin come from? And it should be stated emphatically right from the beginning that it does not come from God. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Write it down. He doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted. He is not the author of, of sin. Um, Louis Burkhoff wrote Systematic Theology and um, from early, like 1930 or something like that. And this is a quote from him. It says, the idea is clearly excluded by Scripture. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Job 34.10. He is the holy God, Isaiah 6, 3, and there is absolutely no unrighteousness in him, Deuteronomy 32, 4, Psalm 92, 15. And so you can just hear how emphatic he is on this idea that it cannot be that sin has come from God. But the Bible does declare that sin is found in Satan, it's found in fallen angels, and it is found in men. Let's look at some of those verses together. Uh, that sin is found in Satan and is clearly established. Ezekiel 28, 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So obviously I believe this passage is talking about a fuller understanding than, um, uh, of, of a person than a local king. If you want to go back and dive into that, we did talk about that a little bit in our study on, on angels and demons, so you can go back to that. But I believe this passage is talking about Satan here, Lucifer, till iniquity is found in you. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of the father, your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. I mean, so Satan is a sinner. He is the, the one that fathers and, and perpetuates this stuff. And 2 Timothy 2.4 says, for if God, uh, 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, and he goes on. So you see that, okay, Satan and the angels sinned. And then man, I don't know that I really would need to make this point. I think we all are aware of this. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see Eve falling and um, sinning, and she goes and she eats the forbidden fruit. And then in Romans 5, 12, we read, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So we're going to come back to that verse many times. Romans 5, 12. It is uh, in that section. So, what do we look at? We see that God is not the author of sin, but it is found in Satan, among fallen angels, and it is found among men. So God is not the author of sin, but it's evident that he as creator gave us a capacity to rebel and sin. 
Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. Um, the omnipotent creator could have prevented the opportunity for sin. And the interesting thing is, if you can follow this, people will say, oh, I don't know if I want to follow a God that would give man an opportunity to sin. Well, the reason why man has an opportunity to sin is because he has a free will. And you having that free will allows you to stick your finger in the face of God. You couldn't, if you didn't have free will, you couldn't even bring up the objection. Do you follow that? Because if God didn't give man a free will and a chance to kind of push the boundaries, then you wouldn't push even that boundary. So you're arguing against the very thing that you are arguing for. <laughs> so man has this ability, this capacity to sin. Um, and if God would have removed that opportunity, that capacity for sin, then he would have removed the opportunity for man to lovingly and willfully follow God. So he has put that. If you still struggle with that, then, well, how would you feel if I began to pick all of your relationships for the rest of your life? How would you feel if somebody else got to come in and just say, um, it's her, it's him, it's this job, it's not that job, it's this house. I mean, to have that capacity to choose, if that was taken away from you by another person, oh, we would rail against that. And God has given us that opportunity. Although God has given us the capacity to sin and make a choice whether to follow him or rebel against him, he is not surprised by sin. He's not surprised by it. And he has provided a perfect remedy for sin in his son, Jesus Christ. But it still remains, even with that understanding of God, he is not the author of sin. The responsibility for sin in the world lies with Adam and Eve. They were drawn away by their own desires. And they brought sin into the world. Again, a couple of verses. James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when his desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So it's, it's through our desires that, that it makes its way. And again, we just read it, but Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So their rebellion against God was the entry point of sin into this world. Their sin brought sin and death into this world. And passed down to, from generation to generations to um, all of mankind. So having a good definition and understanding... It begins to answer a lot of questions like, why is the world like it is today? Because of sin. Why is there death? Because of sin. Because of this that was entered into. And the Lord even warned um, them in the very beginning. But let's make certain that passing fads in theology, not rooted in the word of God, become your basis for understanding of sin. And, and that's you, you're going to have to push back against the tide of this world. You're going to have to walk out into the big waves that are in our culture, and you're just going to have to walk through them. Because the, the, a biblical understanding says that sin is wrong, and that sin is rebellion against God, and um, versus what everybody is wanting to say, and is do what you want, which is no different than the kind of the, uh, the motto that comes out of the days of the judges, and everybody did what was what? right in their own eyes. Nothing new under the sun. So the word of God should be the first and the last source for understanding what ails this world and its sin and how to understand it. Let's talk about the nature of sin. Sin runs much deeper than simply failing to obey the law of God. And I, I think a lot of people don't get this part. It runs much deeper than simply fail, failing to obey the law of God. The nature of sin refuses God to be Lord. 
That's that little added piece that we don't often think of. And rather than having God as Lord, it opts for self to be Lord. That's the nature of sin. Millard Erickson writes, The essence of sin is simply failure to let God be God. It is placing something else, anything else, in the supreme place which is his. That's what sin is. Sin is giving a hip check to God and moving him off the throne of your life and saying, I will determine what I'm going to do. I think we have an illustration of this that so clearly speaks from the days of Samuel when they wanted a king. 1 Samuel 10, 19 says, but you have today rejected your God. That's sin. It's rejecting God who himself saved you from all of your adversities and your tribulations and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before Yahweh, the Lord, by your tribes and by your clans. So this is what sin is. It's not just failing to obey or, you know, walking in disobedience. It is also telling God, you don't belong here. It's my life, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, we may not put it in terms like that, but that is the reality of what sin is. And I know that there's some that will you'll push back. Say, no, 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 that's not, that's not what it is. Oh, yes, it is. That's exactly what it is. It's not just simply you saying, oh, I didn't do the right thing today. It's saying you don't want God to rule over you. You want another king, just like they did in the days of Samuel. God is man's creator and the one to whom he is to yield and worship. We are to yield and worship him. But sin calls for rebellion, calls for an overthrow of King Jesus. And this we call a twisted freedom. But let's talk about the disposition that, that we have towards sin. So that's kind of just an introduction about the nature of sin. It's, it's, it's saying, I want to rule my own life. But prior to the fall, and I think this is an important point for us to understand. Prior to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, man was without sin and innocent in creation. Okay? But after the fall of man, his disposition changed, and ever since, he walks with an inclination for sin. That is how man's disposition changed in the garden, in that rebellion. Again, Millard Erickson writes, Yet sin is not merely wrong acts and thoughts, but sinfulness as well. An inherent inner disposition inclining us to wrong acts and thoughts. We are not simply sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's very true. So then are we responsible? Well, what about for believers? Well, in Christ we are a new creation, right? So we are created in the beginning... Man rebelled in sin and his disposition changed. But then in Christ we are born again. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold all things have become new. So a little bit of hope there in the midst of sin. Is that we are created and now our hearts are inclined towards the Lord. Now, he, he, in the new covenant, writing upon our hearts, we long to walk in obedience. And I think that you see that glimpse even in your failure. Because if you truly are born again, when you fail, your spirit just cries out, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Oh, Lord. For you. And there is that immediate... Um, I guess, a presence of that new creation, even in your sin that you feel. But the sinful disposition that man has is noted by David in that classic Psalm 51 account of his sin and his repentance. And in this passage, he not only declares his error, but he declares that he is altogether sinful, referring to his disposition. So first of all, Psalm 51, 1 and 2, referring to his error. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. 
cleanse me from my sin. So he had committed murder and he had committed adultery and lies and betrayal of friends. And, but moving down just a few verses to verse 5, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And you see that disposition that man has towards sins. And you can find a lot of other verses like that. Jesus also speaks of this corrupt inner disposition that is in the heart of an unredeemed man. Psalm 15, verses 18 through 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Wow. It's not environment, is it? And it's not that individual that you are around that just pushes your buttons. Oh, it's inside of you. It's your, it's your inner heart. It's that, 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 that seed of who you are where these things are coming from. The fall of man in the garden has resulted in a corrupted disposition which has longings for sinful behavior. So this is it. But, but God is not wanting us to walk that out, is he? He's wanting us to live much differently. And so let's talk a little bit about um, the way we should act and what our behavior should look like. Or to put it in other, words, in other words, what is God looking for from us now? What does God want? He created us one way. We rebelled in sin. Man's disposition has changed. But now what does he want from believers? Well, he wants us to conform to his will. He wants us to let him sit upon the throne of our life. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he talks about our relationship with others. Of course, we know that God wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here in Romans 13, he talks about how we ought to love each other. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. If we love God and if we love our neighbor, that is what God wants our actions and our behavior to look like. To be a people of love, vertically and horizontally, towards God and towards each other. So in our understanding of what sin is um, and where it came from, we also see that in the nature of sin that it is way more than just doing the wrong thing. It's, it is more than that. Sin is the disposition that says, I'm going to do it my way, my thing. So let's talk about the effect and the transmission. Although we've already talked about the effect, and we've already read a verse we're going to come back to again about the transmission of sin. But in, in this section of our study, we're going to talk about the depravity of, of sin, or the original, original sin. And we're going to talk about the university, universality of sin among mankind, so it's among everybody, and then how it has transferred from one generation to the next, so the imputation of sin. Um, so, total depravity or original sin. And this is the teaching that addresses how completely affected mankind has uh, been by sin. And again, I think in the world, this is, this is lost. I think in a lot of people who are not in their Bible and reading and understanding it, we, this is a point that's easy to miss. You can find many that would say, oh yeah, man is sinful, but do they believe in this idea of how sinful man really is. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. Wow. That, that's quite a statement. Or in Romans 7.18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, so outside of my walk with God, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So there, this, this sin and its effect has just permeated humanity. Man has no merit 
in himself before God. That's what we're talking about when we say total depravity. There's nothing that you can do to commend yourself to God and say, you really ought to accept me. I, I know I rejected your son. I know that, you know, um, I didn't follow you, but really, you ought to accept me. I was, I was a really good person. It's, it's what people are saying or what they fail to understand when you talk about, hey, you need to put your faith and trust in the Lord. Well, you know, I just think I'm a pretty good person. God's going to let me in. They fail to understand this aspect of total depravity. Uh, Charles Ryrie writes on total depravity. Uh, total in that, number one, it affects all aspects of man's being. And number two, it affects all people. Or Wayne Grudem says, it's not just that some parts of us are sinful and others are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, that is the center of desires and decision-making process, our goals and motives, even our physical body. So we're talking about a total wipeout of humanity that has taken place. Now, Total depravity uh, means that man is incapable, uh, does not mean that he's incapable of doing good things. Man can do good things, um, but we can't present anything to God that would, would please him and accept, make us acceptable into heaven. Um, if that was the case, he would not have had to send his son to die, to become a man and die. So man is totally dependent upon the grace and mercy of God to live the life he was created for and to be redeemed. That is the idea of total depravity. I have nothing to put before God and say, here you go, accept me, apart from your son. Again, I read from Louis Burkhoff. He says, We should guard against the mistake of thinking that the term in any way implies that sin designated by it belongs to the original constitution of human nature. So we may say original sin or total depravity. We don't mean that in, in the original creation that man was in this state. Um, that would mean God created us as a sinner and he certainly did not do that. And total depravity does not mean that man is so depraved that he cannot respond to the gospel. So now, at that point, there will be those that hold five points that won't agree with what I just said. Five-point Calvinists won't appreciate that statement that I just made. And we can, we can disagree on it, but I do not believe that total depravity means that man is so depraved he cannot respond to the gospel. I believe that you know, the will of man is spoken of as being intact. Even in fallen creation, that man's will is intact. And that even Paul ministered to persuade the minds of men to put their faith in Christ. And so I'll read to you those two passages I'm thinking about here. John 5.40, Jesus is speaking. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If man is so depraved, as some teach, that he cannot respond to God, but God must save him, and then upon being saved, then he can begin to understand everything, then what do we do with a verse like this where Jesus says, you're not willing to come to me? So man's will is intact, even in his fallen state. Or 2 Corinthians 5.11 Paul talks about preaching the gospel to people. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust we are well known in your consciences. He, when he spoke, was trying to persuade somebody. That is to move from one opinion to another opinion. Which indicates that within the person he's speaking to, the capacity to move from one way of thinking to another did exist and does exist. I mean, think about what the Lord says in 2 Peter 3.9. For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, if man doesn't have a will that um, can 
put its faith and trust in the Lord, but the Lord must do that work for him. And yet Jesus is going to say, you're not willing to come to me, then we've got a conflict here. That These things don't line up. They don't go together. So it is God who initiates salvation, and it is the gospel that's presented to us. It's us who persuade people to change their mind from one thing to another. We argue for them to put their faith and trust in Jesus because we believe that there is the capacity for them to make a choice concerning the Lord. Scripture does, not, uh, does make note of the unwillingness of men to come to Christ. Um, we already read one verse, but another one would be Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather, you, you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Romans 1, 18 through 21, we see the will of man in high rebellion against God. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So man has the ability to make a choice concerning the Lord. And it is, yes, the gospel is presented to them, and God is the initiator, but there must be a response of man. So when we speak of total depravity, do not mean that man is so depraved that he cannot put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the first point of Calvinism. And from that, if you can't get over that hurdle, you're going to have a hard time with the other points as well, which is for another discussion. I'll let you think it out. But let's talk now about the universality of sin. In other words, it's passed from Adam to all people. Again, the same passage we've read already twice, Romans 5.12. It tells us that sin entered through one man and it spread to all men. All men. Or Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just Westerners who in the last uh, few hundred years have really been exposed to the gospel. <laughs> well, wh what about the Hindu who hasn't been exposed to the gospel and they have generations of believing in Hinduism? Should we go and share the gospel with people that are Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists? Should we go and upset their culture and their family and their tradition with the gospel preaching that would call them out of that faith to put their, their trust in Jesus Christ? Yes, because they're sinners. We're all sinners. Which, by the way, just to state the obvious, Christianity is not a Western religion. Okay? It's not a Western religion. It may be... Um, had great you know, success, and many have come to faith recently, and maybe among the West where most Christians are, but that is even a changing understanding. But it's everybody is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why we read in John 3, 16, that Jesus came to save what? The world. Right? For God so loved the world. Because all, the entirety of the world is in need. But, but you see, you can say, well, what's even the impact of this? It impacts how we view missions. It impacts how we view lost people. It impacts how we view people who have chosen to live in a particular sin or lifestyle because they say that's who they are. See, they, they can say, well, I was born this way with these propensities and these desires and urges. But time out. There's something that's even clearer than what you're saying in your experience, and that is that all people are sinners. And so if everybody's a sinner, then you've got to repent. You've got to turn to the Lord like anybody and everybody else. See, sin alienates people from God. So we go 
and we preach the gospel to all people, even if it's going to upset them. And really, isn't that what the gospel does? <laughs> and in its first work is to upset us and to show us that we are guilty and that we need to be saved. The next point that we come to is the imputation, not the amputation, the imputation of sin. We do need to amputate it, but let's talk about the imputation of sin. That is, how has sin in Adam come to men, all men, today? So this is, um, how does his rebellion in the garden end up in your spiritual bank account? And Romans, again, 5.12, I mean, it tells us that it started with him and then it spread to all men. Well, there are four views, um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I just want to expose them to you, expose you to them, of the, the ideas that people have. Some of these are outright wrong, and then there are other views that Christians, I mean, kind of, and I'll give you some of the, the common streams and denominations that will hold to a particular view. But the first one is um, called the Pelagian view. And I'm, this is a summary that I've, I've taken from um, Moody's Handbook of Theology. So Pelagius was a British monk living around 370 AD. And um, he ended up getting a lot of attention at the Council of Carthage in 418 AD. He was declared a heretic. So this guy had some strange ideas. Um, he taught that every... Uh, created soul was directly from God. So if you remember our study last week, he did not hold to the Traducian theory. But that's not really so much the problem here. He, he believed that every soul was innocent and unstained. So there was only one that was innocent and unstained in the beginning, and that was, well, it was Adam and Eve. But he believed that every time there was a, a, a conception that was happening, that that created soul was innocent and unstained and had no direct relationship to the sin of Adam. And that the only significance of Adam's sin was that it was a bad example. Well, Romans 5.12 makes that a really difficult position to hold, which says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death spread through sin and death and thus death spread to all men. I mean, it's very clear that Adam was that one. Well, the next view is an Arminian view coming from Jacob Arminius, a Dutch theologian who lived around you know, mid-1500s to early 1600s. And um, his view of this is held by Methodists, Wesleyans, and, and many Pentecostals. So it does fall within the bucket of orthodoxy, if you will. Um, but what he taught and believed, he says, when people, and I'm just going to quote, when people would voluntarily and purposely choose to sin, even though they had the power to live righteously, then and only then would God impute sin to them and count them guilty. So again, he didn't believe it passed on until a person actually committed the sin. So it wasn't something that was um, going through generation to generation automatically. So, although man does not possess original righteousness because of Adam's sin, God bestows upon each individual from the first dawn of consciousness a special influence of the Holy Spirit, which is sufficient to counteract the effect of the inherited depravity and to make obedience possible, provided the human will cooperates, which is still has power to do. So, I'm putting a lot of man there. Um, and so... There are some believers that, that hold to this. I think this easily gets off into sinless perfection. I think you'll often find that idea that you could live a sinless, perfect life as a believer. I think you'll often see these um, two views. So that was Jacob Arminius, the Arminian view. The federal view, which I think comes in quite close to where we would stand, it's the next two views, federal view and Augustinian view. And boy, it just you, it gets pretty precise here. But the... Um, federal view was made popular in the 1600s. It's one that is held by Reformed theologians. Charles Hodge, um, Burkhoff, who I've quoted many times, um, are some of those that would hold this view. And this view um, called the federal view because Adam is seen as a federal head or representative of the entire human race. 
And I agree with that. God entered into a covenant of works with Adam. Now, you're not going to find anywhere in Scripture where that is stated as a covenant. But this is, again, a Reformed theological position. So covenant theologians would subscribe to that. If you're tracking with that, fine. If not, don't worry about it. Um, but uh, he, in this uh, covenant of works, Adam was promised by God that he'd be blessed. And the entire race would be blessed if he obeyed, but if he disobeyed, the entire race, uh, human race, would suffer. And as a result of Adam's sin, he was the representative of the human race, and his son plunged the entire human race into suffering and death. So pretty, you know, there's not a whole lot there that I would disagree with. The one point that um, I read as I was thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, is that when you think about a covenant that is made between um, God and, and, and people. So can one man break the covenant for all? And of course they would say yes. Um, and that, but this is a point where objection is, hell, is, is raised. Wait a minute. What, if there was a covenant made with him and he broke it, then he didn't break it for me. I must break it myself. So this would be the objection and they've got a response to it. Again, these, the, the federal view and Augustinian view so close together. But the Augustinian view... Um, written mid three or you know, came about through Augustine in mid 300s to um, early 400s, held by Calvin, Luther, Strong, many others, and this view uh, teaches that all sinned, just like it says in Romans 5:12, and suggests that all humanity was participant in Adam's sin. So federal view says man was not, but he sinned for all of us. This view, the Augustinian view, if you can follow it, I mean, we're, we're splitting some hairs here, is that when Adam sinned, we were present in Adam. It's like, what does that even mean? Well, think about the argument that is made in Hebrews chapter 7, how Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. He paid tithes to um, um, you know, to him. And that Levi, um, being, you know, he was of the tribe of Levi, was similarly present in Abraham. So he, in other words, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe of Levi, paid tithes to another tribe. The lesser paid to a greater, and that was Melchizedek. And he talks about how Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. So Levi was not present but actually Jesus was not present but similarly he he was there so that's the way um, it's talked about you could think about maybe an easier illustration if um, how if one family member when they sinned the whole family was considered guilty of that sin so um, think of Achan would be an example of that so I mean again Augustinian view federal view pretty close I, I would lean towards the, the last view myself, but I have no time for an argument on that one between those two. I won't go with the Pelagian view at all. have big problems with the Arminian view, but these next two, they are, you're splitting some hairs. Um, so the sin of Adam, though, what is obvious is that the sin of Adam has been imputed directly to all men, and it has come generationally down from one parent to their children and so on, and this is how it's passed, although it, it finds its, uh, its failure in Adam. And the pervasiveness of sin, I think, is often overlooked when we consider the condition of man. And so we need to see the deadliness of it, and that apart from Christ, there's no way to be set free from the power of sin. We must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's talk about us now. Let's talk about the Christian, and this is our last major section here. Um, gets a lot more practical, I think, just in the way that it's, uh, the, the sermon's arranged here. But let's talk about the Christian in sin. So sin is real. It is pervasive. It's a reality that we all must confront. Um. And some have said, well, the believer can achieve sinless perfection on this side of eternity. No, um, you can't. Um, and John talks about this 
and how um, he who says he has no sin is a liar. And so sinless perfection is not something. And I think that sometimes this idea is put forward because it's like, well, we really want everybody to feel the pressure to live a holy and righteous life. And if we tell them that, you know, they can't live a sinless life, then they might ease up. But the Spirit of the Lord in you will not allow that to happen. He will yearn jealously with you, um, within you to live a holy and a righteous life. Um, you've probably heard something like this. Uh, Harold Wilmington, professor, is going to be with the Lord, but right out here at Liberty University wrote, one of the truly great and far-reaching blessings of salvation is God's dealings with the subject of our sin. The repenting sinner is immediately and eternally saved from the penalty of sin in the past, provided with victory over the power of sin, the present, and guaranteed final removal from the presence of sin in the future. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I mean that's, that is not the highest reason, but that is a really good reason just to long for heaven. You know, we are not condemned. We are giving, being given victory, but one day we won't even have to deal with the presence of sin. But we're not a slave to sin any longer, are we? We're not controlled. We are a new creation in Christ. And we should be seeking to walk in a holy manner. And we're going to confront, be confronted with sin throughout our lifetime. And I, I think if you come to Christ and you think, well, whew, at least I'm done with sin and I don't have to worry about that anymore, you're going to have a rude awakening, like as in the next morning. And, but as we think about this, there are three ways in which we deal with sin coming out of us, coming at us. It's through the world, it's through our own flesh, and it is through Satan. So let's look at each of these. First of all, um, talking about the, you know, a Christian and how he deals with sin, it's going to come and we're going to be tempted through the world. 1 John 2.15 says that we should not love the world or the things of the world. And then in 1 John 5.9 it says that this world is under the sway of the wicked one. So this world system, don't think of mountains and oceans and birds and butterflies and roses, but the world system and how people conduct themselves, it's under the sway of the wicked one. It's corrupt. And this system that we live in is always at work to draw away a believer, often to their ideas and often to their ideologies, often to their, their thinking. So we must be vigilant and we must make wise use of our time in an ungodly world, Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The world that we live in, we're, it's, it's evil. And we must walk carefully. We must redeem the time. We must be careful. If we go through this life not paying attention to the temptation that the world um, puts in front of us and the draw that it can have upon us, then we're going to be caught up in this over and over again. There are many distractions and cares that will keep the believer from fulfilling the plan of God. Luke 21, verses 34 through 36. Jesus is speaking. He says, Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So we should be praying, we should be attentive to stand when the rest of this world is going to be deceived. And so we don't get caught up in what the rest of the world is doing. And Paul, writing to the Philippians, he exhorted them on how to make choices in this present world. He says in Philippians 1, 9, and 10, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Well, that's the goal. We want to live a sinless life as believers, but we live in a fallen world. And so we don't want to come and stand before the Lord with all kinds of offense. We want to be without offense. Well, how do you do that? He says, you approve of the things that are what? Excellent. And this is where we so often get caught up 
in this world is that we're willing to give approval for the things that are just pretty good. And that, that's not what we're called to. You know, the pretty good and mostly good and not so bad and, oh, you don't have a Bible verse for, against that. Th th that kind of thinking like that, these are the things that end up snaring us or it gets us so busy going in so many other directions, we don't have time to do the excellent and therefore we end up being caught in the snare. Or in Hebrews 12.1, in a more direct way, um, the author says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. It's a weight and then there's the sin. And a lot of times we are approving of weight. We may not approve of sin, hopefully you're not, but we can become so weighed down. But Jesus said, don't be weighed down with the cares of this world. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yeah. If you have too many weights, you can't run with endurance. So that's the world. And this is how we're to deal with it. The, the flesh, it's just you. And this is what many of those who fled out into the desert, the desert monks, and those that wanted to get away from it all. We just got to get away from this world. You got to get away from it all. I'm just got to be out there by myself. The only problem is you took something with you. You. And so there is still the capacity to be tempted and sin through our flesh. Ryrie states, flesh is that principle of sin within all of us. And some equate the sin nature and flesh together. So don't think about your physical body when we say flesh. Think about that which is drawn towards sin. And the New Testament writers give us an exhortation around the flesh. In Galatians 5.19, Paul gives us a list of fleshly things. You might want to look that up. But the goal for the believer is to live a life that brings God pleasure and fulfills the purposes for which he has redeemed us. Titus says that we ought to be zealous for good works, right? We ought to be zealous for good works. And so in order to achieve that goal of being zealous for good works and, and not giving into our fleshly desires, we must take up the cross and crucify our flesh. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 7. You know it well. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, also he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So, if we're going to stand against the flesh, we must crucify the flesh. We must deny ourselves. But what is the mantra that we hear in the world today and even inside the church? Indulge yourself. Well, this is what I feel drawn towards. These are the inclinations I have. These are the desires I have. These are the sexual desires in the way I think and I feel. It's like, well, don't deny yourself. We want you to be true to yourself. Does that align with Jesus Christ and Christianity? No, the Bible says... Deny yourself. Christopher Yuan came out of a homosexual life, and he wrote a book called, um, I think it's called Out of the Far Country. I, I recommend it. Um, he's a professor at Moody, at least last time I heard him speak, he was. And, um, and he was in jail, drug addict, drug dealer, and he just got radically saved in jail. And um, when he got saved and he walked away from all of that, he says that people said, Christopher, you can't do this. He goes, you can't deny who you are. He says, oh, yes, I can, because Jesus said that if I wanted to follow him, I must deny myself. So although it is what we hear all around, let the word of God correct our understanding and wash it. Don't be afraid to call anybody, your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your mom and dad, your friend, your neighbor, whoever, to deny themselves. And this is how we deal with the flesh. We, we, we follow the Lord and we deny ourselves. But uh, the world in our flesh is always asking to indulge itself. Um, lastly, the devil. Um, he certainly is a part of that equation that we have to fight against. This unholy trinity of evil, right? The world, the flesh, and Satan. 
And, but the, the point here is not every temptation comes from Satan. Sometimes they come from within. Sometimes we're influenced by the world around us. And sometimes it is a satanic attack upon our life like Jesus experienced in the temptation in the wilderness. Spiritual warfare is real. And it's something we must be aware of. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. I'm just going to let you go and read this. But this is where Paul talks about how um, you know, we fight against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, okay? So we, we need to be prepared to, to suit up and arm up um, and be ready for the battle. Peter told believers in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, that's not every day of your life, but there are days like that. As a matter of fact, if we even go back to that Ephesians passage, it talks about, in, in verse 13, that we may be able to withstand in the, do you know what the next word is? Evil day. When is the evil day? It's when, when Satan shows up and he begins to draw you and begins to tempt you. And so Peter says, hey, he comes like a, a lion wanting to devour you. James would say, in James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. So there's hope, right? You resist him. Be steadfast, and he is going to flee. Now, when we talk about this unholy trinity of evil, I don't want you to think for a second like we're up against the ropes as believers, because we're not. Colossians 2.15 says of Jesus and what he did at the cross is, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus has delivered the knockout punch to Satan. He has hit the mat, but the count hasn't got to 10 yet. But he's down. The fight is effectively over. But we don't see all things under the subjection of Jesus Christ yet, do we? But I don't know where we're at. Are we on 7? Are we on 9? Are we on the breath between 9 and 10? Have we, are we hearing the beginning of the t 10 count before the Lord returns? That's what I'm hoping for. But the Lord knows. 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So as you fight and as you battle, don't think for a second that you're at a disadvantage. You fight from victory. You fight from, not to, you fight, you fight from victory, and that has come through Jesus Christ. So we'll close here with this last um, sub-point of, of how the Christian should walk. And, and it's, what is the Christian's provision in dealing with sin? And there's just three points I want to make. Um, the first one is found in Romans chapter 6. And it's an understanding, it's a reckoning that you need to have. And that is, you are not a slave to sin. If you don't know that, you will sin. You will live in sin. If you're here tonight, you're thinking, oh, there's no way out of this sin. I'm just, I'm just bound to it. Yes, you are. But if you're in Christ, though, you're out of it. You've been set free. You have been liberated. And so Romans chapter 6, 1 through 4 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know? Question mark. Do you not know? That as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, bring it home, even so, we should walk in the newness of life. The point is this. If Jesus died and rose from the dead, then you're free from your sin. And you've got to reckon that to be true. And even as I say that, I, I can hear the, the gears kind of grinding to a halt in some of your life because of your experience. But don't let your experience inf, you know, determine your theology. Let the word of God. This is a faith thing. If, if, this is what I would say. If you have problems with this, then I would encourage you to go study Romans chapter 6 until it is your best friend. You've got, you've got to know what's there. How were you saved? By the things you did? Or what you believe in? It's through faith. What is he saying? Reckon this to be so. Believe this. And so you can even go into John where it says we've overcome 
because of our faith. Paul echoes this same point, our first point, that we need to, that we're not slaves to sin in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's who we are in Christ. Secondly, it comes from Romans 6 again. And that is that we are to not yield our body to sin. So you got to believe something, but then you got to respond in a certain way. It's, sim- it's similar to the point we made about taking up the cross and denying ourselves. But the believer should no longer present his, his members, his hands, his thoughts, his feet, his mind, his eyes, his tongue, his speech to godless things. Romans 6.13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I think often the way we try to overcome sin is by stop presenting my members of unrighteousness to sin and then we just stop. We don't do the second part of it. What's the second part? And then present my members to God for righteousness. And so our highest goal in that kind of scenario is simply to stop sinning. Is that our goal? That is not our goal. If that's your goal, you need a better goal. And your goal is that you could present your members to God for righteousness. Now, if that's your goal, then you easily move away from presenting your members to something else. But this is often all we're trying to do is we're just trying to mitigate sin rather than walk in righteousness. I hope you can see the difference. Lastly, you've got to renew your mind. You must renew your mind. And that touches even our first point. But um, there are many verses. I'm just going to pick uh, portions of each one of these. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. Um, in verse 10 it says that we've put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge. You need to be renewed in knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of the word of God and who the Lord is and what he's done. Um, Ephesians 4, 21 through 24 Um, but zeroing in on verse 23, it says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You've got to deal with how you think and what you believe. Romans 12, 1 and 2, probably the one that's most familiar to us, and I'll just pick up at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The word of God. Meditating on it. Praying, worshiping the Lord, communing with him. Turn the light on in your life and darkness is going to go. And this is what the idea of renewing your mind is. Letting the light of the gospel hit your mind. So we have victory over sin. It is real. It was won by Jesus Christ at Calvary. It was sealed with his resurrection. If Jesus has died and risen from the dead, then you are free. Now, if you're not walking in that reality of that, that is not because there's a deficiency in the gospel. It speaks of the deficiency that exists in our own mind or that we're aiming just to stop sinning because we don't like the way it makes us feel. Get, Get a higher goal. Again, live, present your instruments, your body to the Lord. This is the important thing. So I we covered a lot of ground. Um, we've got to have a proper understanding of what sin is to properly understand the world we're living in and how to address it. That must be defined and informed by Scripture alone and not by the world and people that are trying to find a way to live in sin. Why are we letting them, those that are wanting to live in sin, define for us what sin is? That makes no sense at all. Let the Word of God do it. And we see that this sin is transferred from one generation to another. It is spread throughout the entire world. And so we take the gospel to the entire world. And, um, and you're victorious. You don't fight for victory. You fight from victory in Jesus Christ. And um, I, I realize it went fast as we go through this survey. But even at that, I'm over time. But I would just encourage you on this last point. Go make Romans 6 the most familiar passage 
in the Bible to you if you are in a place of repeatedly defeated sin. I would first ask you, are you walking in decided unrighteousness, though? Because you're not, it's no help to go read Romans 6 if you're, if you're living in decided unrighteousness. In other words, I'm, I'm okay with sin in my life. Well, you've kicked God off the throne and you said, I don't have a place for you. You've got to deal with that issue first. But if that's not the issue, then go read the liberating truth that is found in Romans 6 that is completely connected with the gospel. If the conclusion of Romans 6 is not true, then what he based it on is not true. And we have no faith. It's true. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to understand this world we live in. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just walk away from sin and walk to something glorious and wonderful, and that's obedience to you, living for you in holiness, having our lives dedicated to the purpose of pleasing you. Lord, we thank you that as deadly as sin is and as universal as it is and as, uh, as corrupting as it was, changing even our disposition that you have stepped in, you've made us new creation, you've overcome sin and death, you've written upon our hearts and your spirit dwells in us. Thank you for overcoming sin.